You know, there are some things in life that are as easy to solve as a simple Google search. You just type in your question and boom, there's the answer. But there are other things that, that even when you do all that searching and researching, it still seems pretty unclear. And one of those questions that I've wrestled with is, is how much water should I be drinking? Because I've been told that I should drink like eight cups of eight ounces a day. That's 64 ounces. I've been told I should drink at least half my weight in water or maybe a gallon of water. And as I Googled and Googled and Googled, I just get more and more confused. One thing I did learn that I didn't know before is that sometimes w- when we think we are hungry, we're actually thirsty. And, and so I've learned that, that sometimes that, that hunger pang is actually a, a, a need for more water. And so now when I'm, I'm hungry, I ask myself, Scott, are, are you hungry or are you dehydrated? I was doing this research because I realized that I needed to drink more water. I wasn't drinking enough water. There were times where I had headaches and I could just feel dehydrated. And so, so I said, okay, I'll fill up my water bottle at home. I'm working from home more. But no matter how much I, I tried, it just wasn't working. So right around Christmas time, I got some extra money uh, as a Christmas gift. And I, so I went on Amazon and I bought this massive water bottle. I carry this thing around with me everywhere now. It's kind of an eyesore. People make fun of me for it. But, but it's, a, it's a half-gallon water bottle, 64 ounces. And it's got all these, these time, you know, indicators on here, like 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 11 a.m., 1 p.m., 3 p.m. I'm a little bit ahead today, you know. And, and as it goes on, you know, it tells me. And there's encouragement. It says, remember your goal. Keep chugging feeling awesome. My kids love to read these off while we're having dinner at night, and they'll harass me if it's 5.30 and I'm still at 11 o'clock, you know? And so this, this you know, silly $20 water bottle for me has been helping me to, to drink more water. And as I was thinking about, about water, I just recognized the fact that, that there, was, there was a different era. The era of the Bible, people came together around water. They, they gathered at the, the well. They gathered at, at the communal water source. That was the place of connection. Now what we do, we just go up to our fridge. We push the, the button in the door and out comes water. Water is a very individual experience. We just take it for granted. If you live in Texas and your pipes froze or your power went out, you don't take water for granted anymore, but a lot of us do. And, and yet it's at that source of water, at that source of life, that we connect and we remember what actually unites us, what we have in common. Today, we're going to talk about a really important conversation that happened at a well like this. We're in a series today called When People Meet Jesus. And, and on the road to Easter, we're headed towards Easter. We're getting ready for it. We're looking at six different encounters when people met Jesus in the Bible. And, and we're looking at what we can learn about those people, what we can learn about Jesus, and what we can learn about humanity as a whole. And in each of these stories, what we're discovering is there's a little bit of ourselves in there. There's something we can learn about ourselves Two. And so if you haven't been with us for this series, this is week three, we'd encourage you to go back to our website, prescottcornerstone.com, under the sermons tab. You can follow along and, and get caught up on those messages. But today, in week three, this is the big idea we're going to look at. That Jesus doesn't let our boundaries and our brokenness stop him from reconciling people to God and each other. Jesus doesn't let our boundaries and our brokenness stop him 
from reconciling people to God and to each other. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to reconcile us with God and to reconcile us with each other. And today we're going to learn about this idea from the experience of a person. And I'm going to call her Sammy today. In, in the passage we're going to look at, she's referred to as, as a woman or the Samaritan woman. Your Bible may say over oh, the section we're going to be in, the Samaritan woman at the well. But her story is incredibly relevant to our moment and experience today. And we learn about her in John chapter four. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up or turn it on. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have a Bible app on your phone, you can always just Google John four Bible and it'll take you to the text. You can follow along with us today. In John chapter four today, we're gonna look at five surprising lessons about Jesus and humanity. From this text, John chapter 4, we're going to learn five surprising lessons about Jesus and humanity. So if you have your Bible open and you're ready to dive in with us, uh, let's get ready to jump right in. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees, the Pharisees were a religious group in the day, very powerful, had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. John's his cousin, also known as John the Baptist. Though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, Jesus left Judea and went again to Galilee. Jesus had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. The first surprising lesson we learn about Jesus and humanity is that the Bible doesn't hide the real racial and ethnic divisions, but Jesus doesn't embrace them. The Bible tells us the truth. It doesn't hide the real racial and ethnic divisions that are at at play and present in the story, but at the same time, Jesus doesn't embrace them. Now, to understand the story, I need to give you a little bit of history. I don't want to assume that, that you know all about the Bible or you grew up in church. And so I'm going to kind of take you back a little bit so that you know what's happening and why this is important. In the Old Testament, the first section of the Bible, the first 39 books, Genesis to Malachi, in the middle of it, the story is told by the people of Israel gaining their own land and building their own kingdom and God blessing them. There were a number of kings that ruled in the nation of Israel, kings like Saul, David, and Solomon. You may have heard some of these names. And during the reigns of those three guys, Saul, David, and Solomon, the nation of Israel— covered a large territory. This bluish color is the the entire nation of Israel under the the reign of Saul and David. And it included the 12 tribes of Israel. They were all united. They were all in one nation. Only problem was when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam made a series of disastrous choices that led to the united nation of Israel breaking in two with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And over hundreds of years, both of these nations struggled. Eventually, the northern nation uh, of Israel was was conquered by the Assyrian Empire. Now, if you remember your kind of ancient Near Eastern history, you had a bunch of different empires. You had the Egyptians, before them were the Sumerians. You had the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. Ultimately, you get Alexander the Great, the Romans. 
But, but the Assyrians were known for a very specific strategy as they were expanding their empire. And the Assyrian empire was a pretty large empire. It, it covered areas of, of, of the, the world we now know as Syria and Iran and Iraq. But the Assyrian empire, they had a very specific strategy. They not only wanted to conquer you, but they wanted to make sure you stayed conquered. So what they would do is they would come in and they would capture a, a foreign um, entity like Israel. They would come in and capture it, defeat it, break down their cities, conquer the people. Then what they would do is they'd take out some of your people to Assyria, and then they would bring in some of their own people so that you would commingle, so that you would begin having daughters marrying sons and sons marrying daughters between races and begin to, in some ways, dilute the, the national identity of this conquered people. Over time, they would also introduce new gods. If, if there was a, a nation like Israel that worshipped a god as they did, the god Yahweh, uh, the god that, that is the god of the Bible, what they would do is introduce these other idols or other gods trying to weaken what actually made that nation unique. So over time, the, the northern tribes, the nation of Israel, they became known as the, the Samaritans because Samaria was the region that, that they were living in and it was the ethnicity that they carried. But over time, that, that, that Jewish identity began to be mixed with other nations. And so by the time to the day of Jesus, there are a number of people living in what used to be Israel, what's now called Samaria, that have this blend of ethnicities and have many times the, this blending of, of gods and worship. And, and so down here, the bottom in Judea, just, just off the, the screen here is Jerusalem, the city where Jesus is crucified. And up here is Nazareth, the, the city that Jesus grows up in. And so Jesus is down here in Jerusalem. And it says in John chapter 4 that Jesus is going to go back up to his home region of Galilee. The only problem is in the day of Jesus, if you were a good Jew, if you were a devout Jew, you looked down on Samaritans. You looked down on them as people who had compromised their, their legacy. They'd compromised their faith. The, the Old Testament was clear that you weren't to marry people of other nations because they didn't worship the same gods, and so they would lead you astray. So in the day of, of Jesus, if, if you were somebody living in Jerusalem and you wanted to go to Galilee, what you would do is you would go around. You cross over this river right here. It's called the Jordan River. You cross over the river. You'd go around Samaria and you'd come up to Galilee. This was not the shortest way. It was the long way. If, if you've ever lived or been in Prescott where we are at Cornerstone Church, you know that if you want to go to Phoenix, the fastest way to get there is to go down the 17. But on a weekend like this weekend, there could be accidents. There could be traffic. There could be fires a two-hour trip could turn into four or five. The long way is to go down the back way through Wickenburg. That's kind of like the long way going across the Jordan River to Galilee. Yeah, it's going to take longer. The fastest way is just to go right through Samaria. The problem is, is if you're a devout Jew, you don't go through Samaria because those are the unclean bad people. You don't associate with them. You don't spend time with them. You don't come near them. You look down on them. Well, what does Jesus do? Does he go the, the long way across the Jordan and go around? No, no, no. He goes right through Samaria. See, 
The Bible doesn't hide the ethnic divisions that are present here. Later on, Jesus tells a story about a good Samaritan. It's called the parable of the good Samaritan. It's one of his most well-known parables. The reason why that parable is so significant, because he makes the hero of the story a Samaritan. People didn't see Samaritans as good. So the Bible doesn't hide these things from us. But what Jesus does is he doesn't embrace them. Everybody else may go around Samaria, but Jesus, no, no. He's going straight through. Because he's not going to hide the problem, but he's not going to embrace it himself. That's the first surprising lesson. The second one is this, that Jesus shocks people by treating them like those who bear his father's image. All throughout the Gospels, but especially in John chapter 4, what Jesus does is he shocks people. He blows them away because he treats them as if they are people who bear his father's image, as people who were created in the image of God, his father. And we see this happen in John chapter 4. Jesus is waiting at the well. It's noon. And in verse 7, it says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask from me, a Samaritan woman? How is it that you ask for me to give you a drink, she says? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So she's shocked that Jesus is asking a drink from her as she pulls water out of the well, because she's like, this is not what we do. In John 4.10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and this well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come draw water. There's a number of things that happen in this nine-verse chunk we just read. The first thing we notice is that Jesus is fully human and fully God. The passage begins in verse 6 by telling us that Jesus sat down. It was noon. It's very likely in that day that he began his travel at 6 a.m. when the sun came up. He'd been traveling for six hours They get to this well outside the city of Sychar. Jesus sits down. He's tired. He's thirsty. He sends the disciples into town to get food. And he's sitting there and this woman comes up and he says, you know, ma'am, I'm thirsty. Can you give me something to drink when you pull water out of there? It's this reminder that Jesus needs water just like us. If it's been a long, hot walk, he's thirsty just like us. But we're about to see not only is Jesus human with thirsts and needs like us, but he's fully God. He sees that this woman is coming to draw water and he has compassion on her. And he says, if you knew what I could offer you, you'd stop drawing water from there and you'd look to me to give you living water. 
water that would well up within you to become a well of eternal life. She thinks she's coming to get water to drink, but what Jesus is saying is, I offer you something that will satisfy you much deeper than your thirst. It will satisfy you down to your soul. But in this conversation, she points out a real problem. She says, why are you asking me for a drink? Because Jews don't ask Samaritans for a drink. There's a little aside there in the passage that said, for Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And that's kind of like an understatement. By this day, as I mentioned earlier, Jewish men didn't associate with, speak with, or drink from the same cups as Samaritans. It wasn't like they just didn't go in the same circles and they weren't friends, you know. Like if you can remember the high school lunchroom, you know, you had the different cliques. It wasn't just that there was an association difference. Like you sit over here and you sit over here and don't come sit at our table. We won't come sit at your table. It's way beyond that. They wouldn't even speak with them. They wouldn't even acknowledge them, much less drink from the same cup as them. See, in the day of Jesus, according to many Jewish rabbis, Samaritan women like this woman, we're we're calling her Sammy for the sake of this message, they were viewed as permanently unclean. There were laws that Jews followed from the Old Testament about when women were unclean, and Samaritan women were viewed as permanently unclean. So to take a drink from a cup that a Samaritan woman had drank from— would be to bring uncleanness on yourself. It was, it was anathema. It wasn't done. If you wanted to make fun of somebody in the day of Jesus, you would say, you Samaritan. It was a put down. It was a, a way to bully somebody. In preparing for this message, I was reading some, some examples of first century views of Samaritans. And I, viewed, I, I found this one from a, a first century rabbi. He said, he that eats the bread of Samaritans, he being a Jew, is like to the one that eats the flesh of swine. Jews would never, ever, ever eat a pig. And it's as if a Jew is eating a pig, which was totally unclean, when a Jew would even eat the bread of Samaritans. Friends, it's impossible to understand what's happening here in John 4 without recognizing that there is some real racial and ethnocentric problems at play. There's racial divisions. There's racism present between Jews and Samaritans in the first century. And so when Jesus looks at this woman and he asks her for a drink and he talks to her and acknowledges her and he shows compassion on her, it is incredibly shocking because he's breaking through the boundaries and the brokenness of his day to acknowledge her worth and value, to connect with her. And one of the commentators I was reading pointed out how interesting it is that that this conversation happens with Jesus and Sammy, this woman, while no one else is around. The disciples weren't there. The disciples who were raised to think and view the world from this flawed, broken mindset. And and so one of the commentators wondered, would this conversation have happened if the disciples were there? Because if you've ever been around somebody who holds on to to prejudice or, or racism, 
what you know is that not only will they hold to those views, but they, they won't let anybody else practice actions and behaviors without making their views known. In fact, they'll try to make sure that other people share those views. So if the disciples shared this prejudice against the Samaritans, would they have let Jesus have this conversation with her? Or is it possible that Jesus allowed them to go into the city so that he wouldn't have to deal with them while he was talking to her? There's just so much to consider here when we look at this text. But when Jesus starts talking to her, he begins talking about what she's doing. He says, hey, if you knew who I was, then you would know that I can give you living water. And this woman thinks, hey, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to get down there? In, in the day of Jesus, living water was another word for moving water. If you've ever been out uh, camping or trekking in nature, you know that if you're going to drink from water, uh, still water, you should not touch. Moving water tends to be okay. If you find a big pond of water that's very placid and not moving, don't drink from that. There's a greater risk of of it having germs that are harmful to you. If you find a a river that's moving that looks clean, then then you're in better shape. And and in that world, living water meant moving water. But Jesus takes that phrase, living water, and he puts a twist on it because he's not talking about water that's moving. He's talking about spiritual nourishment. See, what happens is that Jesus honors this woman and he wants to meet her true needs. He knows that she's coming to get water to drink. But what he wants to do is he wants to give her something that won't just satisfy her thirst. He wants to give her something that will satisfy her soul, that will meet the true and deep needs in her life. And so he connects with her by having a conversation about drinking water, but then he moves the conversation to something much, much deeper. What we see here in this moment is that Jesus, he isn't bound by our boundaries and brokenness. He, he isn't limited by the divisions that are present in our world. And he cares about meeting our real needs. And what he does is he shocks people because even if they've never been valued or honored before, he's going to value and honor them because they were made in his father's image. The third surprising thing that we see here about Jesus and humanity is that Jesus isn't afraid of tough conversations. Jesus isn't afraid of tough conversations. Now, I'll tell you, I'm a little leery, gun-shy, nervous about having tough conversations after the last year. I've got the, the scars and the wounds and the stories about those that I've had. Some of us are just weary of tough conversations. But the one thing we see from Scripture is that Jesus never runs from the tough conversation. After talking to this woman about this living water, he, he turns to her and he goes for the toughest part of the conversation. In verse 16, he says, hey, go call your husband and then come back here. And she answers, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you have correctly said, I don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Like Jesus goes from this conversation about water to this conversation about what she's really hungering and thirsting for with living water. And then he goes for the really tough stuff. (laughs) This woman's real life, her reputation. 
This Samaritan woman uh, was very likely known within her community because by her own admission, she doesn't have a husband, but she's living with a man, which in that day was, was not cool, not accepted, did not follow the law of the Jews or the Samaritans. Jesus says, in fact, the man you're with, he's not your husband, and, and if you go back, you've had five husbands. It's very likely that in her town, the town of Sychar, she was the subject of whispering, ridicule. She may have had an ancient version of like a scarlet letter. And the fact that she is there at noon to collect water is not disconnected from that reality. You see, in the day of Jesus, you went to get water at a well like this one early in the morning and late at night in the cool of the day, as the sun is rising, as the sun is going down. And those were the popular crowded times at the well where everybody was there. But if you're the kind of person that everybody is talking about, whispering about, looking down on, when do you go get water? You go at noon, when it's the hottest and nobody's going to be there, so you don't have to deal with all of that whispering, gossiping, and judgment. Jesus knows why she came to the well at this particular time, and he knows what she needs. He knows that she's coming to the well for water, and it appears that she's been going to the well of men and relationships looking for something, some level of satisfaction. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to help her, yes, experience her physical thirst being quenched with the water, but he's going to also talk to her about this other thirst that needs to be quenched. He knows what she truly needs, and he wades right into that difficult conversation. And because Jesus was willing to drink from her cup, the door opens for him to address her sin. If he began talking immediately when he saw her about why Jews are better than Samaritans, why Samaritans had messed things up from the Assyrians on, if he'd wanted to like relitigate history, they would have never gotten to this point in the conversation. But because he honored her, because he engaged her, because he cared about her, a door opens for him to talk about her actual life and for her to admit that she doesn't have a husband. But once Jesus goes from asking about her husband to declaring the truth of her sexual past, things get uncomfortable. Like, if I'm imagining this moment, it's hot outside. Um, Now it's getting hot in here with that conversation. And what this woman does is she immediately redirects the conversation from her husband and all the men in her life to this kind of esoteric intellectual debate. In John 4, she continues, Sir, I see that you're a prophet because he knows all about her life. She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews said that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The fourth surprising thing about Jesus and humanity is that Jesus is making a way for racial and ethnic reconciliation through his death and resurrection. What we're about to see here isn't just the truth of the situation between Jews and Samaritans, but what Jesus is going to do in the future. Now, this well, the text tells us, is in Samaria, outside a city called Sychar. 
And from that well, it would have been possible for Sammy and Jesus to look up and see a mountain, this mountain, called Mount Gerizim. From the time that that northern tribe and that southern tribe I told you about split, worship happened for that northern tribe on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And those in the southern part said, you need to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple there. Those in the northern part said, we don't want to go down to that other territory, to Jerusalem. We're going to worship up here at Mount Gerizim. And there had been a conflict for hundreds of years about where the right place to worship was. And so with Mount Gerizim in sight, Jesus says, hey, there's a time coming when, when true worshipers won't go down to Jerusalem to worship and they won't come up here to Gerizim to worship. Something is going to change. And this is what he says in verse 22. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. Kind of a harsh indictment. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But he's not done. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. What happens here in John 4, 21, 22, and 23 is that Jesus corrects and then he redirects. He corrects her understanding and says, yeah, the Jews have held on to the faith in a more undiluted, pure way than the Samaritans have. And yes, we worship what we know in Jerusalem at the temple. But that fight and that conversation, I'm not really here for. He says an hour is coming when worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And and that phrase, an hour is coming, is a, a look ahead. It's the phrase that Jesus uses again and again with his disciples all throughout the New Testament. If you're reading through the reading plan with us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've probably read that phrase, an hour is coming or the hour is coming. And it's the phrase that Jesus used with his disciples when he talked about the cross. This hour is coming. This hour when I'm going to die on the cross, this hour when I'm going to give myself as the final and ultimate sacrifice, this hour when I'm going to come and do what I came to do. And in that moment, he said, the conversation about where we worship is kind of done. Because in that day, when that hour comes, it's not about where you worship. It's going to be about how you worship. Worshiping in spirit and in truth. And what Jesus does in that moment is he, he splits this conversation that's been about Jews or Samaritans or Gerizim or Jerusalem. And he says, we're not having that conversation anymore. The new conversation is about all people worshiping me in spirit and in truth. And what he does here in John 4 is a foreshadowing of what John, who wrote this gospel, records in the vision he saw that you know and I know as the book of Revelation at the end of our Bibles. In Revelation 7, 9, John writes, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. 
You see, what Jesus is saying is there's a time coming, there's an hour coming where this conversation is going to be over, where I'm going to die on the cross. And those who worship God will not be about what mountain you're on. It will be about how you worship in spirit and in truth. And the vision, the final vision we have of worship in the book of Revelation, it isn't centered around a mountain with only certain people of a certain ethnicity doing it right. The vision we have of worship in Revelation, this vision we have of eternal worship, includes people from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, which outnumbers the ability to count, worshiping at the throne of God. So what Jesus does here is he begins to tell how they're going to get from this conflict in John 4 to this vision in Revelation 7, and it's going to be through his own death and resurrection. Jesus is making a way where what has been divided and separated to be made whole. The fifth and surprising thing Jesus does that we see here about Jesus and humanity is that people will encounter Jesus through our testimonies. This story shows us that people, they come and encounter Jesus through us, through our stories. Let's finish the passage up here in John 4. It says, Then the woman left her water jar after talking to Jesus. She went into town and told the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, when she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, you have to imagine that a lot of those people know what this woman has done too. And so when she takes off running to go back in the village and she says, come see this guy. He knows everything I did. They're like, Woo. What's he, what does he know? What's he, what's he gonna talk about? There's a level of interest from them. And so later on, it says in John 4 that many Samaritans from that town came out to Jesus and believed in him. Why? Because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Pay attention to that. We'll come back to that. Many more believed because of what he said. So there were those who believed because of what she said, and others, many more who believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we've heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Translation, they came because of her testimony, but they believed because of his words. This woman, who's got no theological training, no background, no expertise. All she has is a conversation and meeting with Jesus, goes back into her town, and it says that many believed in Jesus because of her. They came because of her, but over time they stayed because of the words of Jesus. It's, it's profound. God uses this Samaritan woman, and we call her Sammy for short today, because she just shared what had happened to her. She had enough confidence and excitement and care for other people that she said, I just want to tell you what I've seen. I want to tell you what I've heard. I want to tell you what I've experienced. I just want you to be able to come and see, is this the one we've been waiting for? God uses her in an amazing, amazing way. And I mentioned there's something to pay attention to. The text says that he stayed there two days. Now, remember the beginning of the message? 
what do Jews not do? Well, they don't associate with Samaritans. They don't speak with Samaritans. And they don't drink from the cups of Samaritans. Remember that rabbi who said that to eat the bread of a Samaritan is to eat the flesh of a pig? What do you do when you stay in somebody's home for two days? You eat their food. You speak to them. You associate with them. And as long as you're not gluten-free, eat their bread. What Jesus is doing is putting on a full display of rejecting the racial and ethnic divisions that existed here. In fact, John is something significant. The word he uses for stayed is a word that Jesus will use later in a very beloved passage. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me, that word remains is the same word that John uses for Jesus staying there two days. The one who remains in me or stays in me or abides in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. What John is saying is that Jesus stayed with them and related to them in such a way that reflects the same way Jesus wants to relate to you and me. Jesus, born and raised a Jew, stays and remains with them. The people who were unclean and cast out and looked down upon in the same way that he wants to have a relationship with everybody. This is a mind-blowing thing. And it's a picture of what he wants to do in the future. John 1 begins with this truth. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. What Jesus came to do when he came into the world was not just for certain groups and certain ethnicities and certain kinds of people. It was for everyone. And the vision of the church of Jesus Christ is expressed in Revelation 7, 9. And it is one that is incredibly diverse filled with people from every nation on earth, every tribe on earth, every people on earth, and every language spoken on earth with numbers that no one could count. That's the vision that one day will happen that is beginning in this encounter in John 4 with the Samaritan woman. This is why I said at the beginning that Jesus doesn't let our boundaries and brokenness stop him from reconciling people to God and each other. And if that's a new experience for you, you've never considered it, you never have experienced it personally, or maybe you are uncomfortable with it, then I'd encourage you to spend some time this week back in John 4, back in Revelation 7, because that's the picture of what Jesus is going to do one day. And it's the picture of what we, his people, need to be about today. So before we close today, I want to share some next steps with you. Some guidance to help us traverse the gap between here and then. And here's the first one. Who is someone that you struggle to see as God's image bearer? And I want to encourage you to interact with them this week through that lens. Who's somebody that you just struggle with interacting with? Man, I just struggle. uh, I don't get along with them. I don't like them. They frustrate me. This week... In the same way that you put on glasses and look through the lenses of those glasses, I want you to look at that person this week through the lens of they are someone that God made in his image. 
And before you respond to them, before you speak to them, before you at them, you look at them through the lens that God made them in his image. God made them in his image. God made them in his image. Same way Jesus treated the Samaritan woman. Number two, I want to encourage you to initiate the tough conversation you've been putting off. This conversation was tough. It wasn't easy. It should not have happened and it should not have gone this well because of all the things that were happening around it. But Jesus is not afraid of tough conversations and neither should we. For many of us, the things we want lie on the other side of conversations we're unwilling to have. So what's that tough conversation you've been putting off and how can you initiate it this week? Number three, refuse to ignore racial and ethnic divisions and hostility around you and refuse to participate in it. These kind of divisions that are present in John 4, there are same kind of things that are alive and well in our work today. And so when you see it, refuse to ignore it. Don't stick your head in in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist. And refuse to participate in it. Because if the vision of Revelation 7-9 is true, then it should be influencing how we live now on the road to it. And then number four, I encourage you to send us today the name of at least one person you're praying that your testimony will reach. So if you're like that Samaritan woman, who are the people around you who know your story? And who are the people that you want God to use your story to reach? And today I want to get real practical as we close here. I want to ask you, to identify at least one person that you're praying. I'm praying that they would be impacted by the story of God's work in my life. And if you know their name today, before this service ends, I want you to text their first name to us at 928-288-5490. If you know who that name is, or the person you're praying for, the person you're trying to share your faith with, you're praying your testimony would reach, just text us their first name. Not their full name, social security number, address, Facebook profile. No, no. Just their first name to 928-288-5490 because we want to join you in praying for them. Speaking of prayer, let's do that right now. Jesus, we thank you for the story. It's, it's large. It, it's hard to wrap our heads around. It's from a very different world, Jesus. But there are so many similarities to our world. We still live in a world where people are are labeled, excluded, prejudiced against, put down. We live in a world of divisions, brokenness, boundaries. And we pray that we would be people who wouldn't contribute to that. We pray we'd be people who would contribute to the vision you're writing between John 4 and Revelation 7. We pray that we would be people who, like you, would reach out to and connect those who seem on the outside, excluded, far from you. We pray that you would use us and our stories to help people meet you. That they would come to meet you because of our stories, but they believe in you because of who you are. Jesus, these are challenging times and challenging conversations. It's hard to look in the mirror and 
even reflect on ourselves and face some of the ways this brokenness has showed up in our lives and been part of our past. But we pray that you would help us to be part of the solution and not the problem. That you'd use us to help other people meet you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I mentioned earlier that we're going to close this service out today with communion. So what I'm going to encourage you to do is if you have your elements ready, I want you to just use this next song, this final song that Julie's going to lead us in to reflect. The song is called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And as you prepare to take communion today, I want you to just think about the fact that God loves you with the same love that sent him to that well. He loves you with that same love that sent him to the cross. He wants you to discover his living water too. So when you're ready today, I encourage you to take that bread and take that juice as you meditate on the words of this song, that God's love for you is deep and real and it's powerfully illustrated in his death on the cross. That is the reason we can have confidence our sins are forgiven in the past and the reason we can have confidence of our hope in the future. I hope this service has been really encouraging for you today and I hope this song concludes it well.